Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Peter. In this recording, we will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. But before we jump into that, I wanted to give a quick update. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the study hub for the listener's commentary was getting close to being uh, available and ready to access. And we are now in final testing, working out final bugs. And so within one week the study hub should be available and the study hub really is a place where if you're wanting more than just the audio if you listen to the audio this is think man i wish i had some pictures i had some articles i had more details or links to other resources like this that's what the study hub is for and so we are at the final stages of testing and working out bugs in the study hub and so within one week it should be available so if you're interested in that keep your ears open and your eyes open for that i'll let you know as soon as that's available all right let's jump into first peter chapter 2 picking up in verse 11 and let's just set the context peter has just spent the whole last paragraph really describing the identity of God's people in Christ and using temple language to do that. And so he pulls all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament and from the language of temple worship to say, this is who you are as God's people. You're God's holy people. You're a holy nation. You're a kingdom of priests. You're, you're a temple, the house for God's spirit where he dwells. You're called out of the world as his people to proclaim God's excellencies back into the world. And that's what Peter has been describing is this identity. Well, now... What he's going to do is he's going to shift and say, and here's what that means. What does it look like to be God's people in the world where you live? What does it look like to be God's people who display and proclaim God's excellencies in the world? What does it mean for how you carry out your lives in a culture that is ignorant of and even hostile to God's ways? That's where we're turning in the book of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is like the header for a new section that's going to focus on how Christians are to live in society, especially in their social relationships and especially in relationship to unbelievers. And then in what follows this header in verses 11 and 12, Peter will give three different social relationships where the Christians should live what he calls good lives. And those three social relationships are in relationship to governing authorities. If you're a slave, in relationship to your masters and your responsibility as a slave. And then wives and husbands. And all of those three are sort of examples, specific places where in their social life, Believers are going to have to learn how to live with unbelievers in a way that demonstrates the excellencies of God. So here's how he begins in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, that's who you are, right? You're God's beloved people. You're beloved to Peter. So, Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Notice again Peter's description of Christians. They are foreigners and strangers. And these two words are virtual synonyms. The first is the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 17. And the second is the word that was used in the introduction in 1.1. If there's a difference between the two, foreigners and strangers, the difference is slight. The first, the idea of foreigners, emphasizes more 
the temporary nature of our life in the present world. The present earth is not our permanent home. We're actually heading to a new country, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the second word, translated strangers here, emphasizes that we are not citizens of this world, but we're citizens of heaven. And together, these two words emphasize our out-of-placeness, if you will. If we feel out of place in the world as it now is, that's because we are out of place. We're not of this world. One way this is captured is with the idea or image of exile. We're like temporary residents uh, in a foreign country, or we're like exiles in a country not our own. A country with a very different culture and a different way of life. And in this case, the differences show up in things like different values, different aims, different ethics, different purposes for which human life exists. And so, as such, as foreigners and strangers, Peter says, we need to abstain from fleshly desires. And that word abstain uh, has the sense of holding away from. It speaks of keeping our distance from fleshly desire. That idea of fleshly desires is translated here as fleshly lusts, but we typically associate lust almost exclusively with sexual desire, and the word here just means desires. Uh, it's the wants, the cravings, the ambitions uh, of the world around us. That's the idea, and when he says they're fleshly desires, uh, it means merely human desires, particularly fallen human desires that drive the merely fallen human way of doing life. Many of these desires um, oftentimes involve our physical bodies, hence fleshly, right? Like sex, food, any other sensual desire to make ourselves feel good. Such human passions have to be restrained and reordered so that they're put in their proper place. Some may need to be totally abstained from because they're destructive. And that's Peter's idea here, is that as God's people, and thus strangers and outsiders in this world, as citizens of a different kingdom with a different culture, citizens of heaven, we need to abstain from desires that are contrary to heaven's ways. He says these desires wage war against our souls, and that means that they're contrary to what it really means to be human. They're opposed to authentic, genuine human well-being. They fight against how we as human beings are made to live and operate. And we just need to keep in mind that soul in a context like this, is more than just our inner being. It refers to our whole existence, our real whole human person and life. And these fallen, fleshly human desires war against that and are destructive to it. And so Peter says, as God's people, abstain from these things. Put distance between yourself and these kinds of desires and things that stir up these desires. Then, Peter goes on in verse 12 to say, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. And so in living our lives in the broader society around us, here's Peter's general instruction to us. Keep your behavior excellent 
among the world around you, what he calls the Gentiles here. Now, that word translated behavior here is anastrophe again, and that's the word that was translated behavior or conduct or way of life in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. It's that big, broad word that's really an important word for Peter's letter, and it has to do with your whole manner of life, the way you carry out your life. So, it's not individual-specific deeds so much as the entire nature of your life. So when he says keep your behavior, he means your way of life. Keep the way you carry out your life excellent among the Gentiles. And that word translated excellent, kalos in Greek, means good or beautiful. It's actually translated good in the second half of the verse when it talks about good deeds. It's the same word. Keep your way of life good and beautiful among the Gentiles. And many of the people that Peter's writing to were Gentiles. And so we have to be clear on what he means by that. Um, the word Gentile obviously at one level just distinguishes Jew from Gentile, but it was also the typical Jewish way of referring to the nations around them, the people who were not God's people. And that's the idea here. So whether you're a Gentile believer in Jesus or a Jewish believer in Jesus, what Peter is saying to them is that you need to keep your way of life good and beautiful among the people around you, the unbelieving and ungodly culture around them. And then Peter gives a goal or a purpose for, for doing that. Why should you keep your behavior excellent among the unbelieving culture around you? Well, second half of verse 12, so that, that's a purpose or result clause, right? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, um, they may look at your, your beliefs and your ethics and think they're weird and don't make sense and they're odd. They may accuse you of all sorts of things and speak against you and slander you in ways that are completely unfounded and false. That's the idea of slander, right? In fact, even the Roman historian from a generation after Peter, Tacitus, said that uh, Christians were loathed for their vices, by which he meant their way of life in contrast to the unbeliever's way of life. And we know that the early Christians in Peter's day and uh, on were accused of all sorts of things that just weren't true. Things like incest and cannibalism and all sorts of things that were just complete misrepresentations of, uh, of Christian beliefs and ideas. We know that they were looked down on because of their weird sexual ethics and all sorts of stuff. So whatever the unbelieving culture around you says against you and slanders you, Peter is saying that, well, may your way of life be so beautifully good that it makes it hard for them to continue to speak against you. And not only that, that they actually may glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? Well, the day of visitation is a kind of Jewish way of referring to God's activity, both of judgment and vindication. Judging those who opposed his people and vindicating his people as being in the right. In fact, the exact phrase that's used here is used in Isaiah chapter 10 verse 3 for the day of punishment on the wicked. And so the idea of 
the day of visitation is the day when God visits his people to defend his people by judging the unbelievers and the wrongdoers. The ultimate day of visitation is obviously final judgment. So the point here is that when God comes to judge, sometime in history or at the end of history, live in such a way, make your way of life be so like Jesus that it'll be clear that Christians were actually good and in the right after all, and that perhaps by virtue of the witness of your lives, as people observe them, maybe some of the unbelievers will become believers and thus praise God on that final day because of it. So that's the header, verses 11 and 12, that sets the entire trajectory, direction for the next section that he's going to give us here. The general call is for us to live such good, excellent manners of lives that it's hard for people to slander against us. And that theme is then going to show up over the next few sections. And what Peter's going to do then is really flesh out some of the things he has in mind by a good way of life and good deeds. And normally, when we think of fleshly desires, right, abstain from fleshly desires, he said, we think almost exclusively, in at least in this day and age, of personal morality. And certainly Peter includes that, but he includes it within, really, our social relationships. That is, Peter's going to go on and talk about the roles we play as members of the community at large, as members of society at large, and the relationships that we have there in those places, and then how our lives in those places ought to testify to God's excellencies. So, the first uh, the first set of relationships that he's really going to deal with here is our relationships to uh, people in authority. And so Peter says in verse 13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And so this is the initial call. Submit yourselves. And specifically in this case, submit yourselves, O believer, to every human institution. Peter, what do you have in mind by human institution? Well, he gives two examples. Uh, the first he gives is the king, whether to a king, that is, in his context, the emperor, the Roman emperor, who at the time of writing was the emperor Nero. So submit yourself to the king, i.e. the emperor, or the president, or the prime minister, whatever the big national figure is that's over uh, everything, right? Submit to him, and he says to governors. And governors would be more like local rulers, governors, mayors, right? Local rulers and those sorts of things. But these two, governors and king, are really just two examples of every human institution. That is, every kind of political and civic authority at all levels. Part of living a God-honoring life, a good way of life, in our current cultural context, is arranging ourselves under such authority figures. And we do it not because those authority figures are always perfect or always do what's right, or because they're always respectable or always just. Peter says we need to do this for the Lord's sake there in verse 13. We do it for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? Well, that means literally on account of the Lord. 
because he's the ultimate authority, because governing authority was his idea in the first place. So because we want to honor King Jesus, we submit to human authorities. This is part of being in the world, even though we're not of the world. And Peter gives a general description of the key responsibility of governing authorities. And so it's really instructive to us as, like, here's the essence, the heart of what governing authorities are sent by God to do. They are sent to punish evildoers and to praise the doers of good. In fact, that word translated here, those who do right, is this compound word that means doers of good. It's one of Peter's key words for how he wants Christians to act in the cities where they live, where they're marginalized and being opposed. They need to be people who are known as doers of good. Um, and so that word is going to show up several times over the next few paragraphs because that is the general description that ought to shape our life. We're known for that. We are people whose way of life could be said, man, they are doers of good, right? And that's what Peter is getting at. So governing authorities, their basic responsibility is to punish doers of bad and to praise doers of good. We should be doers of good. And so Peter says in the next verse that doing good within society is God's will for us as his people. So look at verse 15. For such, what does he mean by such? Well, he means to be doers of good, that God's way of organizing human authority for the punishment of evildoers, praise of doers of good, that's God's will. So for such is the will of God that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. And that phrase translated doing right there in verse 15 is this word doers of good again. So that by doing good and doing right just doesn't quite have the same force and feel as doing good. Of course, doing good includes doing right, but it's bigger than that, more than that. Like doing good includes helpfulness, kindness, deeds of benevolence and thoughtfulness, where whether it's just in your own neighborhood, whether it's in society at large and other ways, that you're just known as a kind, benevolent, helpful person who also is morally upright, right? Like you have integrity and all that. So Doing right, I just don't really like that translation here because it doesn't capture, I think, the full force and feel of being known as those who are doers of good. And Peter says, God wants us to be known for that. And hopefully, it will silence the ignorance of foolish people who don't know God, who don't know God's ways, who don't understand Christian ethics or Christian beliefs. They don't get all that. But if they could look at Christian people and say, man, they're such good people, right? Like, May our lives, Peter is saying, be known for doing so much good in town or in the neighborhood that even though our beliefs don't make sense and our ethics seem weird, it's hard to argue against our goodness. That's what Peter is getting at there in verse 15. And then he goes on in verse 16 and it says, Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bondservants of God. Grammatically, verse 16 is actually a continuation of the preceding sentence that started in verse 15. In other words, acting as free people is explaining kind of or connected to doing good. So doing good as free people and not using the freedom as a covering for bad or for evil. That's the idea. And so freedom 
is the freedom to choose your own way of life. That's how Peter, in his ancient context, would understand this word freedom, that you have the freedom to choose your own way of life. And as such, freedom is going to transcend their station in life, since some of the people Peter's writing to are actually slaves. We know that because of the next paragraph. He's writing to some who are servants or slaves, and he's like, but even though that's the case, you choose your way of life, and you choose to live your life in a good sort of way. Don't use the freedom that you have in Christ uh, to do whatever you want as a cover-up for evil. You're actually slaves of God. Bond servants is literally the word slave. You're slaves of God, and that means you, you exist for him to do his will. And so use this freedom that you have in Christ to choose your own way of life, to choose God's way, God's will, to do what he wants. And then Peter wraps up this section in verse 17 with just a handful of quick, short, little exhortations that fit this theme of honoring governing authorities and doing good. So he says in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So Honor all people means treat all people, everybody in your neighborhood, in town. Treat all people with honor and respect. Love the brotherhood. That means the brotherhood of fellow Christians. That's what he's talking about. So in this theme of doing good in town, be known for loving each other, your fellow Christians. Let it be evident and let it be shown. And we know the early church was marked by this. Uh, see how they love one another was one of the things that the the uh, people around them used to say about Christians. And that is a way of demonstrating our goodness that, man, what a good way of life. See how they love one another. And so doing good and living honorably includes loving our brothers and sisters in Christ with genuine loving commitment to their well-being. Now, a little bit of an aside, but I think it's an important aside. When we hear this phrase, love the brotherhood, we're really quick to let ourselves off the hook and, and consider ourselves a loving person. Oh, I, I love people, right? But here's the thing. It's easy to love all people in general, and it's a whole lot harder to love the, the people in my life in particular. So which fellow Christians are you connected to? Not just don't think in general, oh, I'm a loving person in general. I want you to think about the Christians that you're connected to in particular, your brothers and sisters, your in-laws, your friends, your small group, right? Like the Christians that you actually know and interact with on a regular basis, your adult children, right? Like whatever it is, our job is to love these brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. That's what it means when it says love the brotherhood. For for the people Peter's originally writing to, they could see faces because it was a very small group of Christians there in whatever town they were at that they knew and they interacted with on a regular basis. And Peter's saying, love them, be committed to their well-being. So honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. That is live before him, mindful that you act in his presence and under his authority as the, the Proverbs say, this, fearing God, is the beginning of wisdom. So fear God. And then the last short little exhortation is honor the king. As Christians, they couldn't worship the emperor like everyone else in town, but they could and should honor the emperor in word and in deed. So honor the emperor, honor the king, 
honor the primary civic leader that's over the entire country where you're living. Honor the king. So, by way of summary and reflection, part of the way we live good, God-honoring lives and put away fleshly desires is by how we treat and interact with all the different kinds of people in our city and our communities. This includes especially the city leaders and the national leaders. And what Peter says to us is, if you're going to live good, God-honoring lives, then you need to submit to your national and civic authorities. We submit to them and we honor them as God's people. We act with reverence for God and we do good in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our youth centers and in our community at large by how we interact with and treat the civic authorities with honor and how we submit to them. This is a key part of living good lives among the unbelievers around us. Hey, it's John. Before we leave this recording, I just wanted to say thank you to those of you who make the listener's commentary possible by your generous financial support. The listener's commentary is impacting people in over 50 countries around the world, and that is only possible because of your generosity and your kingdom vision. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below where you can set up a one-time or a monthly donation.